Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Grace has become the constant theme of their talk and their prayers. They've written hymns about it, some of the finest hymns. And it takes deep feeling to produce a good hymn. They have fought for it. They've accepted ridicule and loss of privilege for it, if need be, as a price for their stand for grace. As Paul fought the Judaizers, that's what we'll be looking at in the book of Galatians, so Augustine fought the Pelagians, and the Reformers fought the Scholastics. And the spiritual descendants of Paul and Augustine and the Reformers have been fighting, Romanizing, and Pelagian doctrines ever since. With Paul, their testimony is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And their rule of life, life is, I do not frustrate the grace of God. But here's what Mr. Packer says. But many church people are not like this. They may pay lip service to the idea of grace, but there they stop. Their concept of grace is not so much debased as non-existent. The thought of grace means nothing to them. It does not touch their experience at all. Talk to them about the years or the church heating or last year's accounts, and they're with you at once. But speak to them about the realities to which the word grace points, and their attitude is one of differential blankness. They do not accuse you of talking nonsense. They do not doubt that your words have meaning. But they feel that whatever it is that you're talking about, it's beyond them. And the longer that they've lived without it, the surer they are that at this stage of life, they do not really need it. And guys, the grace of God is something that is transformative. Now, there are false, just like there's false gospels, there's false versions of grace. And we want to hear about the real deal, the real thing. False grace, it sounds good, there's some things that sound right, but false grace makes the grace of God about you and your value and your worth. And the grace of God is there because you are worth it. And the word, word grace is spoken about a lot, but it's motivated, God's grace is motivated by your value and worth. The true thing, the pure thing, the real deal grace is God's love for you is in spite of you. And God's grace comes to you and you're ill-deserving of it. And it's not about your worth, it's about the worth of God, God Almighty. And true grace turns, turns our hearts towards gratitude to the one who is worthy of all praise and all glory. False grace makes you think much of yourself. Look how great I am that God would do this for me and have grace for me and love me and give me Christ's righteousness. It's because I am so valuable. That's false grace. The real deal is about the glory of God. And we're going to see that here today. So what's happening in the Galatian churches? Leto talked a little bit about it last week, but after the churches were planted by Paul in Acts chapter 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit shows up, people are saved, Paul gets persecuted, goes from one town to the next, continues preaching, and as he comes back through those Galatian churches of Antioch, Pisidia, Derby, Lystra, we're going to see more of that here in a little bit, but after those churches were planted, they go, go back through and they establish, establish elders, but then there were people who came in, false teachers called Judaizers, who did two primary things. They were, one, questioning Paul's authority, and two, they were perverting the gospel of Jesus. 
And there have always been people, always been people down through the history of the world, people with titles and positions in positions of authority who want to speak about Paul as if Paul was the one writing this letter or preaching this gospel. There's always been people who have attacked the apostles, they've attacked their authority, and they attack the word of God, and they want to pit Paul or Peter against Jesus or against the rest of the Bible. There's always been people who have come at Paul and said, well, no, Paul's saying some great things, but it's, it's halfway true. It's not as pure as the words of Christ. But we see in the scriptures that all the scriptures are red letter. They're all breathed out by God. Paul's words are God's words, and God gave Paul the authority to speak his very word. And it's the same as the authority of Jesus' words. There's still massive waves of people, though, that still want to dissect the scriptures and say, this is authoritative, but this is not quite as authoritative, so I'm going to go with this. And we absolutely flat out have to reject any sort of notion like that. It really shows, for those who want to part and parcel the scriptures and have their authoritative scriptures within the scriptures or their canon within the canon, what it says is that they have a very low view of the inspiration of scripture. When we say things like Paul says or Peter says, what we're actually saying is this is what God has to say. They were inspired men. The Holy Spirit spoke through, and when we believe the Scriptures, we talk about the Scriptures, we believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture, that God, through the pens or through the quill or through the, verb, the verbal words that were coming out of their mouths to be written down by scribes in all of the Bible, we believe that the Scriptures are God's very word. And so these teachers, they were coming along saying that Paul was not really an apostle, and he was just trying to get people to like him, and his words are not actually accurate, and then they were saying about him, others were saying about him, he's just a people pleaser. He's talking to you about grace and about the finished work of Jesus so that you don't have to go out and work hard. And he's just trying to please people. He's, a, he's tickling ears. He's a people pleaser. And so number one, Paul addresses this issue of those who are coming to question his authority, his apostolic authority, and his words, and his gospel. And then secondly, there were people that were adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were coming along, these Judaizers, and saying, yeah, what Paul is saying is, is, is okay, but you also have to accept circumcision and walk in the law of Moses to be justified. And that's an important thing. The law is a very good thing when we understand it does not justify us. But it's a damnable heresy to say that the law has to be lived out and obeyed for us to be justified. And that's what this group was saying. You have to trust in Jesus and you have to accept the law of Moses if you're going to be right with God. Jesus, yes, but also you have to keep the law. So they were coming along saying, and Paul is preaching a half gospel. And his gospel, after all, it just leads people to a life of licentiousness. It leaves people to a life, if your sins are forgiven and all your future sins are forgiven, then why not just go out and do whatever you want? You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This was the accusation. You see how dangerous this message that Paul is preaching is? That you can be justified now? Without any future works, you're going to be justified now before you die. You can't tell people that. How are you going to control their behavior? And so, yes, Jesus, tell them to trust in Jesus, but, but also you have to put some guardrails up and parameters up and tell them that they also, to be justified, need to follow this law, Jesus and the law. So a false gospel sound right. 
there's some reasoning that goes along there. You're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I, I understand. That is dangerous what Paul is saying. And you can see how these churches and the people in these churches could be deceived by such a message because it, it, it sounds right. It preaches good. Now, we don't like that, that free grace stuff because that, what, that, that, what that produces is people who are not passionate about good works. And we're about good works here. And so, yeah, trust in Jesus, but you need to get in line with Moses as well. And if you really want to be right with God, it's Jesus plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus following the law. If you really want to be in with God, show him how seriously you take him and you obey his law. And you trust in Jesus too, but you just need a little bit more than Jesus. The gospel was under attack, and it sounded somewhat correct, and so Paul really is going to destroy their arguments over and over and over again, chapter by chapter by chapter, and it's going to be so awesome. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and not by works of the law. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, so let us not again be burdened by the yoke of slavery. Amen. Galatians chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the other brothers who are with me. First, we see that, Jesus, uh, that Paul, from the very beginning, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addresses the accusation that comes over and over again that Paul's a people pleaser and that he's really not as authoritative as they are. He really doesn't get his authority from God. And he, at the very beginning, identifies himself as an apostle and he gets straight to the issue. He is not an apostle by appointment of men. And he is not an apostle through some sort of succession. He is an apostle, and he is coming to them with the very authority of the God of the universe. People did not make Paul an apostle. Jesus did. Not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Apostleship, we need to know this, true apostleship. Now, in, in the scriptures, sometimes those who are not apostles, like big A apostles, sometimes we break it down like this. There is a sense in which that everybody here, everybody in this room is a little A apostle. We are messengers with a message. And there are some in the church that are gifted with the gifts like evangelism. And some people will go out and they'll preach the gospel. And for some reason, people just respond to them. And they have boldness and they don't care about what people think at all. And they just go out and they preach the gospel and they, they see people respond, gifted with the gift of evangelism. But there is a sense in which we are all gifted as apostles, and then some people with, with, uh, the, with this ap, little a apostolic gifting, they get to start new works, and they see the Holy Spirit working around them all the time, and they see people getting saved, and it's kind of like the gift of evangelism, but there's a sense in which we all do the work of a messenger, but it's wrong to say that we are, or anyone is, apostles like the apostles. There were 12 apostles. And then after Judas, there was Matthias who was to take his place. And then as one who was untimely born, there was the man named the Apostle Paul. And he got his authority directly from God himself. Jesus met him as Paul was on the Damascus Road. And he was not knocked off his horse. There was no horse even in the story. It's an interesting note. We always think he's knocked off his horse. There's no horse. Knocked to the ground. And he met with Jesus, and Jesus showed him how much he would have to suffer, and he called him to be an apostle. And Paul is writing, and he wants them to know that he's coming with the very authority of God. It was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, and it was God the Father who had called Paul to be an apostle. Paul was an apostle of the risen Savior. And the brothers, it's interesting that the brothers who were with Paul also recognized Paul's apostleship. And it said, all the brothers who are with me. They recognized that this work of Paul, even Peter talks about this, he calls the words of Paul the very words of God. 
he was not working, Paul was not working against the brothers, but with the brothers. And he wrote this to all the churches in Galatia. Look at the last five words or six words in, the, in verse 2. To the churches of Galatia. To the churches of Galatia. Last five words. These churches, we find out, like I said earlier in Acts 13 and 14, are Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And all of these churches have had established elders in place. But what happened in these churches is what Paul warned the church leaders in Ephesus about is that there are going to be people who come from amongst themselves that teach twisted doctrines. And what had happened in the Galatian churches is that people came in and began to teach these false things, this false gospel. They questioned Paul's authority and they perverted the grace of God. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to to you in peace. And then here in a second, we're going to look at the gospel in plain sight. What Paul's going to do here in a second is he's going to lay out the real deal before he critiques those who are bringing out a false message. He's going to lay it out there for us. Here's the deal. Here's the pure gospel. Here's the real deal. This is the authentic thing. But first, he does what is so common. He reminds them of the grace of God and the peace that is theirs in Christ Jesus. It's very common for Paul to say the words, grace to you and peace from our God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes common phrases, you can because you read them so much and you're reading your Bible reading plan, sometimes common phrases, you can miss, miss the em- emphasis or min- miss the, uh, the bigness of those words. But I think it's really important to understand that Paul always starts his letters and ends his letters with the grace of God. He starts there and he ends there. The grace of God is encompassing in the life of the believer. And within every church, no matter what season of life the church is in, every church needs to be reminded of the grace of God. And to this day, every single church in southern Illinois, every single church in this state, every every church in this nation and around the world, and down through every single era of church history, we always need to be reminded from the front to the end, we are clothed and covered by the grace of God. God's grace is here for us. It's not going away. Every church needs to be reminded of that. And every season that we're in individually, we need to be reminded of it. And God has seen fit in His Word, when we're reading His Word, and when we're getting to hear His Word preached, God has seen fit that we do not go very far without hearing about the grace of God. It's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. His kindness to us, His faithfulness, it's everywhere when we have eyes to see it. Grace to you, but that's not all, and peace. Even with all the false teaching and teachers that are influencing the church, Paul is reminding them of the grace and the peace that is there there for them in Christ Jesus. There are true believers in Galatia, in the region, and they have peace with God. They've been deceived. There's false teachers there that are leading them astray. But there's still a remnant of people in these churches that belong to the Lord. And Paul is reminding them that grace is theirs and peace is theirs. And this is something that Billy Graham's first book, I believe, was Peace with God. This is something that everyone is in search for throughout the history of the world in every society, is this internal peace. If there's a God, am I right with him? And Paul is reminding them grace and peace are theirs. They have peace with God. It's from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first time I preached through the book of Galatians was in 2008. Started preaching very uh, 
I mean, green, and I was cutting my teeth on preaching, and I just hadn't been in it long. I'd, been, I'd listened to like, you know, a million Matt Chandler sermons and Mark Driscoll sermons and a guy named Neil McClendon. And so that's all I'd been listening to is just binging sermons. Many of you have been there where you're just, I mean, listen to thousands of sermons. Preaching. I remember discovering uh, expository preaching of people just preaching through books of the Bible. And the first time I ever heard that, I thought it was like the weirdest thing ever. What do you mean preach through a book of the Bible? That's like, I mean, you have two heads or something. That's just the weirdest thing I've ever heard. And then you hear the scriptures preached, and you're like, my gosh, this is unbel- This is like more timely than the sermon series I thought I needed. And it's just unbelievable to hear God's words preached. And so I was just binging sermons, and I started preaching through the book of Galatians, and I was just really new to, to study and really new to preaching regularly, and just first started preaching. And I missed, I went back through about a year ago, went through my, my notes from those first sermon series in Galatians, and I missed the gospel hidden in plain sight here at the beginning. Because Paul lays it out for us, the real deal, the pure thing, right here in the very beginning of the letter. And so everything else, it's kind of like when you have the real deal, you know the fake deal. You have the real deal, so when we go through the rest of the book, we realize, man, they are really off. They're missing what Paul talked about at the very beginning. It's the gospel in plain sight. Look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the gospel hidden in plain sight. And so lest we too quickly move to the juicy stuff like this, I'm astonished that you who are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God and are turning to a different gospel. Or unless we get into, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you and the hard-hitting stuff that Paul brings to these churches. Let's pause and let's think about the pure gospel. This is the gospel. There's no other gospel. This is the only gospel. It's the real gospel. It's the true gospel. And you can't find it anywhere else except for the Holy Scriptures. It's unique. Jesus gave himself for our sins. That's what it says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. Jesus substituted himself for us. It was our sins, and he gave himself for our sins. Our sins have been punished because Jesus took our sins upon himself. This is the message of substitution. It is a message that has continually been under attack. Several years ago, there were some famous British theologians who talked about penal substitution, and they said it was divine child abuse that God would punish his child for people. There are people that still attack in progressive Christianity, which is never progressive, by the way. Progression rarely is. It's always regression. That's why we call women dancing with no clothes on at the Super Bowl, and people call that progress. That's regress. That's regression. Put a dress on. Cover that up. It's regression. That's why people call progress things like, ah, Jesus really didn't die for their sins. He really wasn't, the wrath of God really didn't come down upon him. It's why people rewrite words to songs like In Christ Alone, and they say, instead of the wrath of God was satisfied, they say things like the love of God was magnified. It's because substitution is under attack, and it always has been. And here's what you notice. 
Dustin Kinshrew was a famous hymn singer, or hymn writer, and, and modern hymn writer, and he wrote a bunch of great songs, and we sing some of his songs. It is finished, he has done it. Like you're, we're, that, isn't that a great song? Here's the thing, Dustin Kinshrew doesn't write, write worship music anymore. He abandoned the doctrine of penal substitution. And when you abandon the doctrine of penal substitution, there's no, good, no more good news to talk about. There's nothing else good to talk about. You have lost Christianity. You have lost the gospel message that Jesus actually dies in the place of real sinners, bearing the wrath of God Almighty so that sinners wouldn't experience God's wrath. Those who are covered in Christ, those who are purchased by the blood of Jesus, do not experience the wrath of God because Christ himself has substituted himself for us. He is our substitute. He died for our sins. He took our place. He took our punishment. He took on God's wrath against us. And any message that questions substitutionary atonement, we should immediately plug our ears and start humming. Nope, nope, nope. I'm not going to listen to it. It should be outright rejected. Without substitution, there is no good news. It's the basics of our faith, and it's right here. And this is what these Judaizers were rejecting. No, Jesus didn't really die for all of your sins. Jesus may have died for some of your sins, but he didn't really die for all of them. You've got to get out and obey. The work of Christ is not really enough. You need to supplement the work of Christ with your work. And Paul, from the very beginning, is wanting us to know, no, 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 Jesus died for our sins. It's glorious good news. Now, I want you to notice the specific language here. What, what language matters in the scriptures, and the words that Jesus, uh, the, the words, excuse me, that Paul the apostle used is that he died for our sins and then to deliver us. We have the words our and us. This is particular language. Our and us. This is the Holy Spirit writing this. Now, when we're talking about our and us in the scriptures, we have to ask, who's he talking about? And the Apostle Paul is not talking about each and every person in the world. He's talking about those who he's writing to, ours and us. It's particular language. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us, our and us, particular. Now, this is really important, and I'm telling you, this, this is like a, this could... It'd be so helpful for you. This has been so transformative for me. One of the things that's important for us to know is that uh, if you're a Christian, it's not because you tapped into the power of the cross, but because Jesus actually died to purchase you. Amen. It was objective. It wasn't a subjective atonement where Jesus died hoping, people that would, hoping that there would be future people that, who believed in him. So he didn't, so the, the idea of atonement that Jesus died but didn't actually die for real persons, he, he just died hoping people would believe in him. And, and that sort of model of, of, of Christianity or understanding of the cross, Jesus doesn't actually die for anybody. The salvation comes when somebody believes in them, believes in him, and then the power comes from the person to the cross. But substitution means that Jesus actually died for real people. And when people believe in him, it's because Jesus purchased that salvation for them. And it's Jesus that taps into them. It's not they that tap into Jesus. Power for salvation flows from the cross to you, not from you to the cross. From our perspective, people are turning to Jesus and trusting in Jesus. 
But the reason they're doing that is because Jesus actually died for real people. His blood came out with names on it. We have to understand that Jesus' death had multiple intentions. And this is something that I think, we again, it's messages hidden in plain sight. Um, he died to purchase you, the Christian, us and our, these particular language, like a believer in here, every believer in here. And then you'll get to see how this, uh, this uh, paradox works here in just a second. He died to purchase you in a way that he did not die to purchase the man or a woman who rejects Christ and ends up in hell. His death was different. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the foundation for marital love of a man to a woman is the, the particular nature in which Christ has loved you, his bride. That's the foundation. Jesus loves everyone, but he does not love everyone the same way. This is seen everywhere in our life. God the Father loves everyone, but not in the same way. You love your children in a different way than you love other people's children, for goodness sake. Some of you don't even like other people's children. <laughs> you love your wife, men, in a different way than you love all the other women in your life. And your wives are thankful for that. No woman is like, yeah, I feel really honored that my husband loves me just like he loves every other woman. It's just the same. It's fully egalitarian, fully same kind of love that he has for every woman. That's awful. The foundation of the particular nature in which we are to love our wives is that Jesus has loved his bride in a specific way. And he gave himself up for his bride in a specific way. The death of Jesus Christ was substitutionary for those whom the Father chose to be the bride of His Son. This is why this is where the heart, the rubber meets the road with the grace of God. And if you'll try, if you'll really go there with the grace of God, it'll blow your mind and it will tear away all pride from your life. It will crush pride for the rest of your life. Why are you a Christian? It has nothing to do with you. It's solely by the grace of God and His benevolent loving choice to save you and to call you to himself. Us and our is so special. It helps us to understand that we did nothing ourselves. It was Jesus who saved us, not us who tapped into his saving power. So let me say it again. Salvation flows from Jesus to us, not from us to Jesus. His blood came out with your very name. That's why you believed in him. God chose you to be the bride of Christ when you were dead in your sins. He gave himself for your sins, for our sins, for us. Now, you may be wondering now, because when you start thinking through this particular language, well, what about for people that don't know Jesus right now? Like, what about for those that aren't called us and our right now? This is the paradox and why I love the scriptures so much. Well, who is it that Christ died to save? What if somebody's not in the bride? What if somebody wasn't chosen by the Father? You guys have thought this before when you're thinking through either the doctrine of election or atonement or substitutionary atonement. And there's some people who say, well, yeah, Jesus died the exact same way for everybody, even those who are in hell. You're like, well, then it wasn't substitutionary because what wrath did he absorb if they're getting God's wrath again? Okay, so here's the nature of the scriptures and why. Okay, you can't figure this out. Let me just tell you at the beginning. Let me just tell you this. You cannot figure this out. And if you demand from God to be able to figure this out, what I'm saying right now, 
um, you're going to be disappointed and frustrated. And if you don't like some of this, what we end up doing is, is picking out and doing what these Judaizers do. We like some scriptures, but not the other. Well, who is it that Christ died to save? It's revealed by way of this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Each and every person who calls upon anyone. The Bible says over and over again, John does this throughout the whole gospel. Whoever, whosoever, calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And whoever means whoever. Like anybody who wants him can have him. So you have these paradoxes in Scripture, and that's why biblical theology is so much better than, than philosophy, because it demands of us to embrace truths that we can't fully understand. And for some of us, for some of our minds who just want to know, we've got to understand. Jordan and I talk about this because we, we go through this and, 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 uh, uh, about anything. Is we, we, we've got to figure out what's going on or what's wrong. We've got to figure out what's, what's up. Well, when it comes to theology, there's so many times we're just like, God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Can I let God be God or do I have to demand the same knowledge that he has? And when we see things like this, to deliver us from this present, or to, our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, that's particular language. God has particular love for you. Jesus did something specially and particularly for you. Enjoy what Christ has done for you. Thank him for it. And it wasn't because of anything that you did. It was because of God's grace and mercy to you. And if you're here today and you say, I don't know about that. I don't know the Lord. Okay, repent and trust in Jesus today. And then praise God for his grace that, that flows from God choosing to save you. Choosing the choosing of the Father, the cross of Christ, down to your very heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust in Jesus and then stand in awe at his grace. Now, this is interesting. Our salvation, this is where we get into true, true grace and false grace. Our salvation, here in a minute we'll get into it more specifically, but our salvation was not just for us. We were saved. Jesus died for our sins. Now look at this. To deliver us from the present evil age. There is a flow of thought here. Jesus died for us to deliver us from our sins. And then, or excuse me, died for our sins to he did that so he could deliver us from the present evil age. And then we're going to see another progression here in a minute. So what, what does it mean that he died for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age? Remember, this is the real gospel, the pure gospel. And the Judaizers failed, and they were thinking in long, along the lines of the present age, of false religion, of false ways to God. And Paul's telling them, no, 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 Jesus died to deliver you out of that. This present evil age. Now, the Bible regularly speaks about... The, this age and the age to come. When you go through the scriptures, you'll read this, especially the gospels, you hear about this age and the age to come. This text is not speaking about that. What is the present evil age? And one commentator was particularly helpful. I want to read this. So to deliver us from the present evil age, here's what this commentator says. He likewise declares the design of our redemption. So that's he died for our sins. The design of our redemption, that Christ by his death might purchase us to be his own property. This takes place when we are separated from the world. For so long as we are of the world, we do not belong to Christ. The Greek word for age is here put for the corruption which is in the world. In the same manner as in the first epistle to John, in John 5, 19, where it is said that the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. 
So the present age, evil age, is the world. When you hear the world, the present evil age is equated with the world. So long as the man himself is to himself, he is condemned. The present evil age, therefore, is contrasted with regeneration. Those who are born of the world have nothing but sin and wickedness. Not by creation, but by corruption. Christ, therefore, died for our sins in order to redeem or separate us from the world. You know the phrase that Jesus tells us, that we are in the world, but not of the world? So we are in the world, but not of the world. When we became a Christian, Jesus died to deliver us from our sins and then to deliver us from the present evil age. We are stepping into the very kingdom of God. We do not belong to Satan. We belong to King Jesus. We live in his kingdom. We do things his way and by his means. We're in the kingdom of God. And it's into this ever-expanding kingdom of God that continues to grow. It's a different way to live life. We do not live life like the present evil age because we've been delivered out of it. So we don't pay attention to the nonsense of the way of the world. We don't go there. We don't entertain the silly thoughts of, of, of modern whoever, the craziness that's in the world right now. We don't entertain the thoughts of people who don't actually believe God's word is God's word. We pray for them. We tell them to repent and to trust in Jesus. We tell them the good news of Christ. But we've been delivered out of that way of thinking. We're delivered from that world. Um, the Judaizers were bringing them back into that world. The otherworldly gospel was turned into something understandable and manageable according to human means. You see, a, a gospel of grace that says that, God, that, that the salvation is basically a, a reward for your works or it's, uh, it's Jesus plus something else is just like every other salvation message in the world. There's no difference at all. There's just variations of it, of the same thing. The gospel message is literally you had nothing to do with this. God saved you. From the beginning to the end, you can't get to God. God came to you. And you, you look back and think about when, when did you choose to trust in Jesus? And you think, well, why did you do that? Um, because the Holy Spirit convicted me. What if the Holy, Holy Spirit didn't convict you? Uh, well, I would have never trusted in Jesus. Exactly. Exactly. We are dependent upon God for our salvation. That's the message of the gospel is that God saves single-handedly. He doesn't need our help. He saved us to deliver us from the present evil age. We do life differently. Guys, that's why we're doing life differently. We care for one another. We, we build. Everybody else is Debbie Downer in the whole world. You know what? We're keeping doing life. We're building. We're building families. We're loving our family members. We're taking care of our church. We're, we're loving each other. We're wanting to move forward and move on. We're, okay, everybody else is crying about stuff. We're going to get to work. We live in a different kingdom. Now, God did this according to, listen to this. This is so great. According to the will of our God and Father to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, notice the pattern. It continues to build. They all build on each other. Jesus gave himself up for us to deliver us from the present evil age. And now we're told how it was done or what it was done according to, according to the will of God and Father, God our Father. Now, it's really important. Even though God's wrath was upon you before you were a Christian, even though we rebelled against, rebelled against God in Adam, we rebelled against God. Even though people right now who don't know God are children of wrath, even though God's wrath was on you before you were saved, he loved you. 
And the atonement isn't that God was really, really uh, angry with you without love. God was wrathful. Jesus came and, and Jesus kind of won out. God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Holy Spirit were all in cahoots to, to get rid of God the Father's anger. God's wrath and His perfect love are simultaneous. And through His wrath, which is based on His justice, He sent Jesus in love, and there's perfect unity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in this whole redemptive work. Ephesians 1 gives us insight into the eternal covenant of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, even before the foundation of the world to get a bride for Christ and people who would glorify Him. And so Jesus came being sent by the Father. This all of our salvation was according to the will of our God and Father. God's, God the Father's plan to save you from His wrath because He loved you. He, that's why He sent Jesus. He wanted you. He sent Jesus for you. All of like who you are right now and all of your sin being forgiven and being delivered out of this present evil age, it's because God the Father wanted that for you. And He sent Jesus for you to make it happen and then sent the Holy Spirit to apply this work. Your salvation and my salvation is rooted in the love of the Father. The God of the universe wanted you. Now, I was doing an interview with this guy this week, and he talked about how if Donald called you up, even if you don't like old Donald, you know, Trump, even if you don't like him, if he called you up and said, hey, yeah, i got a couple business plans for you, and I think you're the, I think you're the man for the job. I think you're the one. I've, got, I've been thinking about this. I've been planning this, and I've got, a couple, I've got some things. I want you to be on my team, and I want you to go out and lead this effort. We'd all be like, Donald Trump just called me and offered me a job. You know, he was, he'd been thinking about, you know, the Donald called me. The God of the universe, the God of the universe, it was his will to call you to himself. God, God Almighty, who spoke everything into being, who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, knows your name, and he called you to be his son or his daughter. I want you, you're coming with me, I love you, I, I've, sent, I've sent my son to die for you, and I'm doing that so I can deliver you out of the madness that's going on, and it's according to my will. That's our Heavenly Father doing that, He wanted you. And then li listen to this, this gets down to the, to the heart of it. To deliver us according to the will of our God and Father, look at verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Kids in the room, why did God make you in all things? For His glory. Parents in the room, grandparents in the room, aunts and uncles in the room, single people in the room, why did God make you in all things? For His glory. Your salvation has a purpose. And it's not for you to glow in your glory forever. Look how much God loves me. Look how much I was worth. Look how valuable I am. Look how beautiful I am. Look how wonderful I am. Look how much worth I have. Turn that attention to God. There's a point to our sins being forgiven, and there's a point to being delivered out of the way of the world, this evil age. The biggest reason for your salvation is not first and foremost that you would be forgiven. He did that according to his own will, to whom be the glory forever and ever. It's the best thing that you can do for the rest of your life to live in thankfulness and to give glory and honor to the God of the universe. That's better for you than just sitting around thinking about how valuable you are. 
God, thank you for who you are and what you've done in my life. You've been kind to me. You've been gracious to me. You have lavished your gifts upon me. I didn't deserve any of this. I'm going to love and obey you and do whatever you have for me to do. I, I, it's my joy to honor you the rest of my life. Why did God save you? For his glory. Paul shows us the purpose. To whom be glory forever and ever. The Judaizers missed this. They were making much of themselves. And they were wanting others to come and make much of themselves. If salvation is 99 hand claps to you and one hand clap, or 99 hand claps to God and one hand clap to you, that's still one hand clap to you. And it's like Paul saying, no, 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 no. To God be the glory forever and ever. I am what I am by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. If righteousness could be gained by the law, Christ died for no purpose. God gets 100 out of 100 hand claps. A million out of a million, a trillion out of a trillion, even more 30 trillion than our national debt out of 30 trillion. He receives every single hand clap. We were built and saved to give God praise and thanks forever and ever. When we think about the word glorifying God, to whom be the glory forever and ever, the gospel of Jesus, the grace of God is the fuel for that. A life giving glory to God is a life of gratitude. That's what, that's what giving glory God to, 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 to God, thank you. It's living a life of thankfulness. That's what it means to glorify God. Jesus died for your sins. He did that to deliver you from the present evil age, all according to his will and all to the praise and the glory that is due his name. So that, that's what the work of God should do. This is the journey that we're going to be going on, is discovering the grace of God, the treasure of the grace of God. And we're going to see people that come and pervert that and delude that, and they give you a half gospel that's no gospel at all. And Paul's going to tell us next week, if anybody does that, let them be cursed. Right. And there are false gospels all over the world, even in some pulpits. And God's work in our lives should produce in us a growing thankfulness and gratitude all the days of our life. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. For you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are those things that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You were once not a... Not a er, I messed it up. I almost had it. <laughs> Missed it. Messed it up. The point is, you are who you are, that you may revel in your glory. Oh, no. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, present evil age, and into his marvelous light, the kingdom of God, all the days of your life that you may declare His excellencies. Your salvation is for a bigger reason than you. The grace of God is true. And there's always going to be naysayers who come. They want to make grace understandable. And so they're going to want you to have some skin in the game. And it's going to sound right. Well, it's because you were worth it. Or if you don't obey, if you don't come alongside, how can you know that you're going to be justified? Jesus really is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the pure gospel. We thank you for your particular love.
We thank you for your grace that has been lavished upon us. You haven't just given us some grace. You have lavished your grace and your favor upon us. I pray against pride over the next few months. God, I pray that pride would just be destroyed in us. I pray that, that pride would be destroyed in me. Thank you that redeeming love has become my theme and it will be the rest of my life. I pray that for all of us. Holy Spirit, lead us as we respond. Lead us as we respond. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's